All right, good morning. It is great to see you guys today. Hope you had a good week. Don't you just love the sunshine? I, I got to admit, it was hard to kind of pull myself from out there into here uh, in between the services, but boy, it sure is a welcome sight. Uh, glad you guys are here. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10. So we're going to start today, and then we're going to shift over to John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 7. So if you, uh, you have your Bible with you or on your device, whatever you got it on, and in a moment, as soon as the ushers are done taking the offering, they're going to come back and offer uh, a Bible to, to use today and just get their attention. Uh, while they're doing that, can I just give you another heads up? That was something that Damien didn't mention. On February, or excuse me, on March the 11th, right after the 11 o'clock service, we'll have our first informational meeting for a trip to Israel that we plan a year from now. In fact, it's a year from this week uh, we'll be uh, traveling. Uh, we've done this for a number of years, and if you've never been, uh, we really encourage you to consider that. It'll change your life. It really will. Uh, this is a trip of a lifetime, and I know it's a big investment, big sacrifice, uh, but if you're interested in finding out the details of the itinerary and registration, come and join us. We'll be by, right behind the building here, back in the pavilion, and uh, that will be March 11th, okay? That'll be the first time that we'll gather for information regarding that. So uh, today... We are in chapter 8 of our series of His Story. Uh, some of you, I know, may have joined us the last week or two and, and maybe haven't got the full background. We, it's, we're basing this on a book that actually one of my, uh, my colleagues, one of my buddies down in uh, Arizona, his team kind of put together a compilation of the four Gospels in chronological order. Pretty much it's just those four Gospels with transitional statements but we've been following the life of Jesus. Of course, the subtitle is to get to know Jesus better than you've ever known him before. And I hope that's been your, uh, your experience these last weeks as we've been w walking through that. Today we're in chapter 8. And as Nancy implied, we're going to be taking a break for our missions week, uh, a short break. And then we'll pick this back up. Uh, and then at that point, we're going to be in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry and life. And so everything's going to start concentrating toward uh, a build-up toward Easter. Uh, so uh, this weekend, in, fi in fact, if you're newer to North Shore and you haven't got the book, we still have a few copies. If you get an usher's attention after the service, they'll, uh, they'll be glad to put one in your hand and you can join us. But we, we've been on this path together. And I want to just take just a moment to review where we've been. We started off, of course, at Christmas with the birth of Christ. Familiar story to most of us. And and we relived uh, the details and the account of that. The, the next week, uh, Pastor Scott led us in the beginning of Christ's ministry, which particularly happened at the Jordan River when he was baptized. Uh, they, they heard the statement, you know, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. They heard the voice of God saying, this is my be beloved son. And so that's where his ministry launched. He was roughly 30 years old right around that time. And from there, we read that he went north up to, towards his hometown of Nazareth. Not too far from there in Cana, about four miles from Nazareth, is where he did his first miracle. And that kind of let the cat out of the bag. And everything started to go from there. Uh, he, he, uh, he preached at his home church, his home synagogue, if you will, in Nazareth. And they did not receive it well. They rejected him. In fact, they tried to throw him off the edge of the cliff. And so he left and goes down to the Galilee area to a little village called Capernaum, a little fishing village. And that would be his uh, kind of home base, his headquarters, if you will. He selects the disciples. He begins to pour into their life. 
but starts to teach the crowds that begin to gather. And roughly through the month of January, we were looking at the teaching, the revolutionary teaching of Jesus that stirred up the religious leaders. They did not like what they were hearing because he was breaking their rules that they had established. Not, not the pure law that God had given, but they've expanded this thing and embellished it, and they've just gone all over the place. And Jesus wasn't fitting their, their image that they had in mind. And so there's a, an increasing clash between him and the religious leaders. We saw how he pulled out these disciples, these fishermen, uneducated, you know, pretty raw guys, and he starts pouring into their life. That apparently was his predominant objective in those years, because later when he prays in John 17, the, we call it the high priestly prayer, he says, thank you, God, for bringing those out of the world that you gave to me. He's referring to his disciples. And then he says this statement, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And when often we read that, we're thinking he's talking about the cross or the sacrificial work. He's not talking. He hadn't gone there yet. He's talking about the work of pouring into these disciples, training them up, getting ready to send them out. And guys, I want to remind you here at North Shore, that's why we do what we do here. That is why we're committed to disciple-making, to pouring into your lives and training and developing and hopefully maturing to the point where you grow up to a point of a spiritual parenthood where you can now invest in, in an, another spiritual generation. We're not going to just let you sit there and stay in the infancy or childhood. We're going to keep pushing you. We're going to keep stretching you and, um, you know, pouring into you and challenging, holding one another accountable. So when we talk about life groups, you know, where, where we get together in smaller units like that, that's why we because that's how Jesus did it. It doesn't happen in this setting. This is important, but this is not where the primary growth and training and preparation happens. It's going to happen in a smaller relational group to where you can watch each other and see it modeled and, and see how it unfolds. That's why we do this. And Jesus has displayed that to us. Well, the second year of his ministry, it, it continues with healings and, and just amazing things, you know, calming the storms and casting the demons out, even raising the dead. And he continues to pour in these disciples, revealing the heart of God. He kind of moves forward in contrast between what they were used to with the law and showing what is the true intent that God had in mind with that law. So that second year is marked by that. And now we're into the third year where he's going to begin to disclose more and more about who he really is. If you were with us last week, we kind of left off in Caesarea Philippi where He's surrounded by all these pagan gods, and he asks his disciples, he said, guys, who do, who do people say that I am? He said, well, some, some say you're Elijah come back to life. Some say you're John the Baptist. Yeah, but who do you say that I am? And it was Peter that stood up, and he said, I believe, I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the Messiah. And he says, that's exactly right. And it's upon that profession that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? And so now this week, this week we, we kind of come up to this point in the third year of Jesus' ministry, and this chapter 8 of his story is largely centering in, and the stories we read about in there are centering in about who really Jesus is. Things are about to change. And now he's beginning to kind of kind of disclose ultimately 
his plan, which is to go to Jerusalem, and there he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be found guilty of blasphemy and ultimately going to be crucified. But he says, on the third day I will rise from the grave. You know, if there was one thing I could sum up these disciples with just a phrase, it would be they just didn't get it, right? That seems pretty plain. That seems pretty straightforward, but they did not understand it. In fact, Peter, remember Peter says, I won't let that happen to you. And he said to him, get behind me, Satan, because he knew, he knew it was the devil that was going to try to dissuade him from going to the path that God had called him, and he didn't want his own disciples being a puppet or a mouth, mouthpiece of his adversary. So that's where we're at, and that's why I invited you to turn with me to Luke chapter uh, 10, but I want to look just a few verses before that in chapter 9. I want you to begin to see how this is, this is unfolding. Verse, 30, or verse 51, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The next verse he says, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Okay, we've been living with him. We've been walking with Jesus, learning from him, growing in our understanding. What's going on? He is now getting ready to go to Jerusalem, and he knows by going into the heart of all of this that he's kind of taking the shots at that they're not going to stand for it. And he knows ultimately this is, this is where uh, his life will be laid down. He understands this. He begins to disclose it to the guys. They don't get it. But now he's on this path, on the journey, and he's sending these guys out in front of him to prepare the way. Now think about this. He's going through this area. Now I don't know if he's traveled through Samaria, uh, through Samaria at this point. Most Jews, if they were going from the Galilee to Jerusalem, would avoid Samaria at all costs. They, it was just kind of a uh, an area they didn't even want. They'd even take a longer route just to avoid it. But he's intentionally going through there. He's sending folks ahead to tell them, hey, Jesus is coming. And this is something that I, I just noticed this week. I thought about, you know, there's something to say about anticipation and expectation, isn't there? And when, he went ahead, when they went ahead and they said, Jesus is coming, Jesus. And most of them had heard the stories. I'm sure the news was spreading but, but now they're saying, wow, he's, he's coming. He's going to be here. Maybe, maybe in a few days, he, Jesus is going to be here. The anticipation, the expectation. And friends, that's the secret of faith. When you're anticipating something, and then all of a sudden, boom, there he is. That's like the woman we read about a couple of weeks ago that reached out to touch the, the robe, the hem of his garment. She anticipated something, that this is going to happen. This will unfold uh, you know, if I believe this. And he said, because of your faith, that's why you were healed. And now, if that wasn't enough, look with me at chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, he's going to send out even more. And it says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So now, this is not just the 12, friends. This is not just the, the authorized ones. This is spreading out. That's why it's important for us today is to see ourselves. Those of you here today who are followers of the Lord, who know that you've invited him to come in, that he lives in your life, in your heart, 
you are like these 72 who are being sent on ahead to, to the world that we come to and the people, where, whether it's at work or it's your, your kind of um, uh, you know, sphere of influence that you have with friends or your family or at school or wherever God has taken you and placed you, you are the light of Jesus Christ. You represent Christ wherever you go. Now, that might be a good representative and it might be a bad one, but you are going to represent Christ if you go on record that I'm a follower of his. And as they went out, here was the key. If you're going to represent Jesus Christ, you've got to know who he truly is because you're going to be challenged. How do we know that? Listen to the words of the Lord. He says he sent them out and he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of, what's it say? Wolves. That's what it's going to be like. You got to know who he is, okay? So this morning, just in the next few minutes, what we're going to do is we're going to take in and consider what what were the perceptions? What, were the, what was the misinformation about who Jesus was that was looming out there? Because you're going to find that the folks you and I deal with, they're going to probably resonate with some of those same areas, and you're going to hear the same kinds of things. But then we need to turn around, secondly, to listen to what does Jesus do in response to those statements about who he is, and what does he declare? And then finally, we're going to be taken to an illustration of somebody who who discovered and found the, the, the true Jesus, the real Jesus. Okay, let's pray and let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we do bow before you very humbly today, thanking you for your word once again that discloses the truth about who you are. I thank you that you are the word of God. You're, you're the one that helps us to understand who the Father is. You and the Father are one. And when we see you, we see him. And that's what we want to see today. So bless this time. Give us eyes to see and hearts to put into uh, practice what it is that you call us to. And if there's a person today who has never met you, perhaps today they will sense the Spirit calling them to trust you for salvation. So I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, you got some notes that you got on the way in. I'm going to walk you through. There were, uh, there were four things as I was going over to the Gospel of John, which is uh, where I'd like to, to turn, if you would. Gospel of John, just a few pages to the right. Chapter 7, 8, 9, we're going to be looking around there. And, and as we, we ask this question, who, who is Jesus? Here's what some of the people were wrestling with, all right? This is what they were debating. I want you to live with this. Let this just, just kind of penetrate and just think, okay, what, what would I have been thinking? What conclusions would I have been coming up with with the information or with the experiences that up to this point they would have had? Here was the first one. Is Jesus good or is he a deceiver? Is he a good guy or is he out to, to lead us down the wrong path? Here, here's what happened in John 7. He says there were those that were muttering about him among the people. And while some said he is a good man... Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Okay, when I live with this, 
and I think, okay, some of the folks, when I get into a conversation, for example, and I start talking about spiritual things, if the door, I sense the Spirit's opening the door, what, one of the things often I will find with somebody that is irreligious, they don't know the Lord, they have no background or experience, and that's more and more the case these days. They just don't have a point of reference, right? We're in a post-Christian uh, season now. And a lot of times they'll, they'll come to the conclusion and say, oh, yeah, I believe he's a good man. Jesus is a good man. You ever heard that? Or he's a good teacher. Or In fact, it's interesting. Jesus had an encounter with a young man. We call him the rich young ruler, and he addresses him that way. And he says, good teacher. And when you use that word good, what they're saying is that's as far as they want to take him. He's, only, he's just good. And Jesus, Jesus made it apparent to that kid, if he's a kid, uh, nobody's good except God. Nobody's good except God. So is he a good guy? Or in this case, is he going to lead us astray? And some folks wrestle with that. They don't know. Where's, where is he going to take us? Where is he going to take me? That's kind of the, the entry point. It, it goes up from there. Now they're going to wrestle, okay, is he a prophet or is, is he truly the Messiah, the Christ who we believe is to come? And John, a little later in that same chapter, they were wrestling. He said, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, well, is the Christ to come from Galilee? I think there's a lot in that statement. Jesus obviously was doing miracles, and I don't think anybody was arguing with the fact that, that those were happening. The works were very evident, and the, the word was spreading. But think about this. If you were a, a Jew at that time, all you had was the Old Testament, and you read about people like Elijah or Elisha or some of the other prophets, they did miracles too, didn't they? And that, all the miracles showed was is that they were from God. So some of them are wrestling, is that as far as Jesus? Is he just another one in the line of prophets that have come? Or is he the one that we're looking for, the Messiah? And, and if, if we were where they were at trying to figure this out, we would go on what we knew the Old Testament said about the Messiah was coming. There are many prophecies, and one of them in particular said, he is going to come from Bethlehem. That's what they would have thought. So if you're looking at Jesus, you hear the stories about Jesus and the information that you've got at this point, that he, he would have probably carried the title Jesus of what? Nazareth. Now, would that be a stumbling block? That's not Bethlehem. That's why that verse says, well, is he supposed to come from Galilee? We, we, we thought he was supposed to come from Bethlehem. And they didn't know the rest. We know the rest of the story. And we take that for granted, but they didn't. They didn't know what happened 33 years earlier and the whole story. But there's another thing that could have been a stumbling block. If they did know the story about how he came to be, about a young woman who was visited by an angel, right? And that she became pregnant before she was married, do you suspect there might have been some scandal that would have spread through that little village, that they wouldn't have believed that it was from God, that they wouldn't believe it was from an angel. And Jesus grew up almost under a cloud of suspicion. Is that possible? Watch this. If you have your Bibles open, if you look over in the next chapter in verse 41, verse 41, he's in this argument with these religious leaders. 
And it gives us a clue that perhaps that part of his reputation had preceded him. It says, uh, he's talking to them about Abraham, and he says, this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father. And then they, boom, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. You ever notice that? And maybe they're just saying, we're, still, we're, we're drawing from the, the gossip that has gone around about you. I mean, that's a pretty formidable attack, wouldn't you say? And so they're saying, are you really the Christ? Could you possibly even be the Christ lacking these details over here that we know? And then they zero in even more, and they said, you know, you're, you're nothing but a sinner. You're a sinner like the rest of us. Why did they come to the conclusion? Well, these guys did because he broke their laws, the laws of the Sabbath. If you watch in verse... Um, uh, 16 of chapter 9, some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But the others said, well, how could a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was great division over them. Another verse said, you know, that the, the Jews, uh, as they, they were debating this uh, man and talking to this blind man a little bit later in chapter 9, verse 24, Here's what they literally said. Give glory to God because we know this man is a sinner. So they'd already summed it up. He can't be from God. And if, if they could take it a step farther, they did. And they said, you're not only just a sinner, the things that you're doing is from Satan. You are from Satan. Every time I hear this, I haven't shared this in previous service, I got a really close friend that's been in the ministry. We were in seminary together. In fact, we went to undergraduate together. He was in my wedding. His name's Harry Keel. And Harry, when he got out of seminary, he took a little church in San Diego, California. And, and they were in a, a, just a rough, kind of a tough area. They weren't reaching anybody in their area, you know, that they were located. And bottom line was he felt that God was leading them to move out outside into a, a temporary facility of school and kind of almost like plant a whole new church. And I'll never forget Harry telling me he's in a business meeting. It's one thing I thank God. We don't have too many business meetings, uh, you know. But this guy stood up in the middle of service. He says, you're from Satan, you know. And he just, in front of everybody, you know, and Harry just, just said, that was when I knew it was just, it was time. <laughs> you know, things are going pretty south when they're saying, you're from Satan, and uh, I, can I just say thank you for never having had to have that experience <laughs> in this, uh, this setting. They said that to Jesus. You're from Satan. It says you're casting demons out by the power of Beelzebub, you know, which was, was their version of that. In fact, uh, John 46, he says the Jews said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, uh, that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon. Okay, what are you going to do with this? Does this, by the way, does this resonate with any, anything even close or resembling some of the arguments that you encounter, you know, when you're going out and you're sharing about Christ? How does Jesus respond to that? What does he say in response to that? Well, let's, let's address these. Let's start with that last one and work our way back, Okay. What about this one, that you're a demon, that you're from Satan, you know? He says, that doesn't even make sense. I didn't write this down in your note, but he goes, he goes to say, listen, if, if I'm casting demons out by the power of Satan, 
then that's a house divided and that would never stand. It would never, it would never be able to go forward. Why would I do that? That doesn't even make sense. It's not even rational. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Basically says you figure it out. And even the 72 that were going out, they're coming back and saying, wow, Jesus, this is amazing that in your name we are seeing that the demons flee at the name of Jesus. And so, friends, the truth that Jesus is declaring is he is not a demon, not even close, and he is not even equal on power with him, but he is stronger than Satan. He is the conqueror of Satan. Going back to Genesis, he's the one that's going to crush the serpent's head, all right? He is the victor. He is the conqueror over that. And so all of this was showing evidence that he has power over him. And that's why he goes on in that verse to talk about that you, you bind a strong man if you're going to take over. And that's what he's doing. He's binding him, and he's, he's got control over him, and he's declaring that. So he's stronger than him. What about the issue of being a sinner? Jesus, you're just like the rest of us. You're a, you are a sinner. A couple of things I wanted to, to address. In the story, this chapter, you'll read one interesting story of a woman who was caught in adultery, caught in the act. Good chance she was drug out in front of her community and she didn't have any clothes on. And if you can imagine the shame that was associated with that. Here she is, and she knows what the Jewish law says, and these guys knew what it said. It said she should be stoned to death. They thought they had Jesus. They had him in a corner. They had him trapped. And they said, okay, here's, here's what they were thinking. If we ask him, what does the law say? He, you know, the law says you should stone, stone her. But we know Jesus well enough by now that that's not, that's not his, in his wheelhouse. He loves. He forgives. He shows mercy. But if he just lets her off the hook, you know, then what he's doing is he's denying what we know to be the pure law, which is thou shalt not commit adultery, okay? So they got him in a corner. What does Jesus do? He looks at these guys and he says, okay, any of you that is without sin, I want you to be the one to throw the first rock. And one by one, it says that they, they dropped their rock and they walked away. Here's one interesting little detail. They said he, he, he kneeled down and he started writing in the dirt. By the way, this is the only time Jesus ever wrote. You read about Jesus writing anything. Isn't that interesting? The Son of God, and he wasn't an author. He was, didn't have books that were going to perpetuate. The only time he ever wrote was in the dirt, and that didn't last very long. Well, I don't know what he wrote. People speculate. All I know is one by one, they drop their rock. He looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? She says, there are, there are none. That's right. And he says, and I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. What a beautiful sight. And I, I bring that up because it became apparent that, that everyone was a sinner. And yet just a bit later, Jesus says in John 8, 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? I mean, think about this, folks. For a guy to stand up in a group of people and say, which one of you can validly call me a sinner? Now, some of them would say he was a sinner because he broke their laws. 
the ones they came up with. But we know now, because we've been walking with him in this story, those, those weren't necessarily what God had in mind, and he never disobeyed God's law, never stepped outside of it. He was in constant communion with the Father. And can you even imagine what it would be like to stand up and say, which one of you can, can validly call me a sinner? So what is he saying? He's saying, I'm without sin. And what did they do? <laughs> look, look what it says. Um, he basically saying that they were, ready to, they were ready to kill him. They were ready to throw rocks at, at, at him. And, uh, and that's what happens subsequently as he, as he now declares who he really is. They're in this contentious argument with the, the Jewish leaders. They're falling back on Abraham, and they're saying, oh, Abraham's our father, which essentially was saying, you know, he's our founder. Everything we rest on politically and spiritually goes back to Abraham. He's the greatest guy that there is, is what they're, they're saying. And we're from Abraham. Who are you from? You know, we go back to Abraham. And Jesus responds, truly I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. And I think some of you here that have spent time in the Word long enough, you, you can appreciate when he said, I am, we're thinking about Moses and, you know, crying out to God, when I go to the Egyptians and to Pharaoh and to call upon them to deliver, who am I going to say sent me? And God literally told Moses, tell him, I am sent you. This was the name, basically, that God gave, gave himself. I am. And Jesus is now declaring that he is the great I am. I am. And what do they do? So they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself, and he went out of the temple. This is who Jesus really is. Um, I, I thought it might be helpful. Some of you, I know, are just getting acquainted with your Bible and and just the things of the Word. Oftentimes for a, a new believer, we point him to the, the Gospel of John uh, to read, and some of you might be at that place. Let me just give you a little, just a little thought here. Uh, John, John's Gospel is different from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It was written much later. John had a lot more time to think about it. And the Lord used him in such an amazing way in the construction of the Gospel of John. His whole objective is to get us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has come to redeem us, okay? That's his objective. He says it over and over again. How does he do that? Well, the way it's laid out, there basically are seven I am statements that John records. And there are seven miracles that he records. And in some of these cases, those miracles are the very thing to authenticate the I am statement. Now, now I, I was going to go through the seven just to give you a record of this so you can see it for yourself where they lay out. I've given you the references, but here they are real quick. You'll get writer's cramp if you do it too fast, all right? But, but let me give them to you quickly. The first one he mentions is, I am the bread of life. Now, what would the miracle be that would go along with that? Is the feeding of the 5,000 and the, the multiplication of the bread, right? And then he says, well, I am the, the bread of life. This is how it works. I am the light of the world, how would you prove that you're the light of the world? Well, how about healing a blind man that had been in darkness all of his life, and now all of a sudden, boom, he can see. He can see the light. 
That's how it worked. He goes on to say, I am the door that, that, that you come in legitimately through. He's talking about the sheep in this context. In that context, the fourth thing is, I'm the good shepherd over those sheep. Then he says, I am the resurrection. What was that on the heels? What miracle would that be on the heels of? Raising Lazarus from the grave. I am the resurrection. You see how it works? And then in John 14, I am the, the, way, or the, the way, the truth, and the life. This is in the final hours. And then the last thing he says, I am the true vine. I'm the true vine. And by the way, the first miracle that he did was in the wed at the wedding of Cana, it was to turn the water into wine. I'm the true vine. So this is John's construction. And it's kind of a beautiful thing as it, as it lays out. And Jesus is making this declaration, and they can't stand it. And this is why Jesus was crucified. This, this was the claim. He was, he was a blasphemer. He was claiming to be God. An out-and-out -out overt claim. He finally gets right down to it in John 10, and he says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. He's, he's, he's basically now going out and saying, I'm God. And they picked up rocks to, to kill him. They couldn't stand it. I am the one and only true God in the flesh. Friends, that's the Jesus that you and I have come to know and to love and to serve. That's who we declare to a lost and, and dying community, a darkness that is there. And when you go there, friends, Jesus himself said, you're going to be like going from lambs to the wolves. They're going to make all kinds of claims. They're going to, they're going to resist. Don't be surprised if they don't pick up rocks. Maybe not literally, but it'll feel that way, and throw it at you. This is, this is what we've call, been called to. And so, as I, as I kind of wind this down for today, the picture I wanted to leave you with was with a, of a guy that came to know this true living Jesus and to see, see a couple, two or three of, um, of the characteristics of a follower of Jesus now who has come to know the true Jesus, what are they going to do? And I just picked these up from this experience. Here's the story. They're, they're in Jerusalem now. Okay, this is the final, they're headed toward the final chapter. They see a blind man, and the disciples are hovering around Jesus, and they ask Jesus, who sinned, Jesus? Was it this guy, or was it his parents that sinned? You see, you see what their thinking is. He's got this, this thing that has befallen him. Somebody has to blame, be blamed for it. Is it him? Is it his parents? Jesus kind of wipes out. He says, neither one. He says, this is so that the glory of God can be revealed. He goes over and he touches the man, and his eyes are opened for the first time. He gets to see for the first time. Well, that ushers in this whole array of issues now because the way he did it kind of gross, but he spit in, on the ground, and he made a little mud pie. And he took the mud pie, and he put it on this guy's eyes, and he said, go wash. And when he washed that, them off, that's when he got to see. By that time, Jesus was gone. But this guy's going, whoa, I can see. And now these religious leaders get into the story, and they are so upset because he made a mud pie, and the guy actually washed them off on the Sabbath day. 
could care less whether the guy seen for the first time. All they were concerned about. So now they start peppering him with all these questions. What happened? Who did this? How did it happen? Are you saying this? And they start going after him. And then they think, this guy wasn't blind. He's, he's always been able to see. How can we tell he's blind? Well, call his parents in. And his parents say, yeah, he was blind. He was born blind. You know, that's for real. And they say, well, how did that happen? Well, hey, he's old enough. You talk to him about this. And they go back to this guy, and this guy's just kind of going, what is this all about? And then it really puts a smile on my face when he finally comes to the conclusion and says, do you guys want to be one of his followers? Is that why you're asking me all these questions? And they're saying, how dare you? And they kick him out of the temple, and they boot him out. They can't stand it anymore. Well, he goes, you know, kind of wandering away. And all of a sudden, Jesus finds him again. I can just see Jesus kind of coming from around the corner and watching all this. And he says, hey, hey. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this guy says, tell me who he is. If, you, if you'll tell me who he is, then I'll, I'll believe. And he says, you have seen him, and the one who's talking to you right now is, is him. And he just goes, whoa, you're the guy. And the Bible records that he calls him Lord. He, I believe. I believe in you. Okay, what do we learn from that? Here's three things. This one I'll leave you with today. When you have come to meet Jesus, when you come to truly see Jesus, first thing, you're going to tell other people about it, aren't you? You're going to tell people about it. And this guy simply said, you know what? I don't know what happened. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. And I'm wondering, in the room today, are any of you able to testify to that? <laughs> were you, do you remember a time when you were blind? You could not see. You didn't know who Jesus was, but something happened. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody shared the good news, and something stirred in your heart, and you just were drawn, and you said, you know what? That, that, that's what I want. That's what I've been yearning for. How do I find this? And you say, just invite him, and you did, and you prayed, and that changed everything. Can anybody here testify to that? Say amen. amen. You been there, huh? You remember the time? That's what you do, and you can't help. Friends, you don't have to go to a 12-week class to learn how to tell somebody that, do you? This is, not, this is not rocking science here. You just testify. What did Jesus do for you? I was blind, and now I can see. And he will do the same for you because I know him, and he loves you. He cares about you. That's one of the first things. The second thing is, I would, say, I would say we learn to hold things loosely. This guy gets booted out from the temple. Now, I don't know what his relationship was, was with Jews, but he was, that was his life. And to say, we've cast you out, that's the world casting him out, basically. And I think in general, we have to be prepared for a separation from the world. Does that make sense? We have to be prepared that when we go on record and say we're with the Lord, that the world isn't going to like it. He said, you guys are going out there and you're like lambs among the wolves. Just be prepared. They aren't going to like it. You're exposing the darkness, and, and they don't like that. So hold this world and the things of this world very loosely. It's like the songwriter said, we're just passing through. We're pilgrims. We're just, we're just passing through. And then the last thing, I can't help but notice that when he came to know the true Jesus, it says so clearly, 
He said, Lord, I believe. And then the last thing he says, and then he worshiped him. He's the only one worthy of our worship. And friends, I don't know what that looks like for you. I know the reality of worship is, is very personal. It's very subjective. It's different ways for different folks. But I, I do have to say this, that, that I hope we can grow to the point where it's not about us. I think, I, I'm going to be real straight with you. I think that's a sign of infancy or even childhood. It's very selfish to say, well, I like it this way, or I want it this way, or I demand this. Uh, whoever said it was about you to begin with. It's all about him. And when you come to know him truly, you're going to, you're going to adjust to him. So if he says, this is what I like, then we're saying that's what we want to do. That's what we want to give. He loves your praise. He loves to be declared worthy in your eyes. He loves to see your heart surrendered, yielded. He loves to have your attention. Remember last week we read their, their lips say one thing, but their hearts are far from me. He's looking for your heart to, to be lifted. And so today... As we send you out, there's more than 72 here, by the way, but we're going to send you out as lambs among the wolves. And today, you're going to take the name of Jesus. Do you know who he is? If you, if you came in this morning and you don't know who Jesus is, this is what he says to you. Behold, he says, I'm standing at the door of your heart and I'm knocking, and if you'll open that door, I will come in, and I'll live there for the rest of your life, and then the life beyond. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Uh, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray with you and for you, and then uh, we're going to worship him, okay? We're going to lift our voices, and I hope it's sincere, honest, earnest worship that you can offer him this morning, just like this blind man whose, whose eyes were opened. Father, thank you for this uh, time we get to gather. Thank you for the inspiration that comes just from hearing your word. Jesus, we, we really do feel like that we're seeing you in a light that perhaps some of us have never seen before. We're getting to know you, Lord, at a level that, that may be new territory for some of us. And I just pray that today over your people that know you, that love you, that are followers of you, yours, I pray they will go with a new resolve and a boldness and a courage to declare the name of Jesus. In this dark world, Lord, that we live, we know it's like going out into, into the midst of wolves <laughs> that want to devour us, but we're going to go boldly because we know there's no other name under heaven that a person can be saved from our sin than the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray for a person in this room who you're calling to yourself. Maybe they've just been on the initial steps of, of the seeking and this journey, and they've never kind of fully taken that step of faith to trust you. Lord, just assure them that you, you are good, <laughs> and you are great, and you are God, and that, that you, you will care for them and love them with an everlasting love. Maybe today, if that's you and it describes where you're at, just in the quiet of this moment, that you want to say in your heart of hearts, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? Would you come into my life and make my heart your home? 
I want to know you. And I need your power. I need your forgiveness, Lord. I need the cleansing that will come from that so that I can begin to serve you. Today I trust you for eternal life, for that salvation that you promised. I believe in you, Jesus. And I commit myself to you. Father, it's amazing what that prayer does. And I just pray in the days and weeks ahead that they will experience the power of the Holy Spirit because you've promised that Spirit to come inside when we ask. And so we look forward to see the miracle that will unfold and just pray your blessing over each one, Lord, as we, as we take this now and hopefully put it into practice. We love you, Lord. We worship you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.